Well, we want to welcome everyone to the Secrets Unsealed production studio. We're glad to see you here today, and uh, we have a lot of material to cover. Uh, not only tonight, but also the next three days that we're going to spend together. I trust and hope that it's going to be very, very productive for each one of us individually and also for the Seventh-day Adventist Church on a global scale. I not only want to welcome everyone who is here in the studio, but I also want to welcome everyone who is watching the live streaming and everyone who will watch these presentations on YouTube as well as later on on television broadcast. I believe that the first thing that we should do before anything else is to ask the Lord's presence. And so I invite you to bow your heads with me reverently as we ask for the Lord's blessing. Father in heaven, we come before you this evening thanking you for the privilege of being here. We realize that these are very, very important times for your church. Many, many important decisions need to be made. We just ask, Father, that you will help us to understand that the best decisions that can be made will always be based upon the foundation of your holy word. So we ask that you will be with us, be with all of those who are watching this on television, are watching on YouTube, and in live streaming. We ask, Lord, that it will be a blessing. And we ask for your presence. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Why has Secrets Unsealed decided to invest a considerable amount of financial resources as well as time to organize and to present this symposium. There are basically three reasons why our ministry has decided to do this symposium at this time. First of all, Secrets Unsealed is a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and we feel like we need to do all in our power to uphold the decisions that have made by, been made by the World Church, by the Seventh-day Adventist World Church. Twice the World Church decided in 1990 and 1995 not to approve the ordination of women to pastoral ministry or pastoral leadership. And uh, so at Secrets Unsealed, we believe that we should do everything in our power to uphold the decisions that have been made by the World Church. Secondly, we believe that the issues that were discussed at the Theology of Ordination Study Committee should become public knowledge. We rather doubt that very many people out there are going to sit in the pews and read the voluminous and technical theological treatises that were presented at Tusk. This would take hours and hours of arduous and difficult reading. So what we've decided is to present what was given at Tosk in a simple and easy to understand way so that everyone who is watching is able to understand the presentations that were made at the Theology of Ordination Study Committee. In the third place, it has been virtually impossible for us to gain a communication outlet where we can share our strongly held view that although we support women in ministry, at the same time, we are opposed to the ordination of women to pastoral leadership. The channels of communication of the denomination, especially in North America, have been used to support only one side of the issue and are closed to any other view. 
And so this has made it necessary for several supporting ministries of the church, such as Secrets Unsealed, to use their means of communication to share the other side of the equation. Now the question might come up, doesn't a symposium like this risk the possibility of polarization that creates disunity in the church? I would be the first to admit that this is a possibility, but it is not the intent of those who are speaking at this symposium to cause disunity in the church. We firmly believe in the unity of the church, but we believe that the unity of the church must be based upon faithfulness to the Holy Scriptures. We cannot just make up our minds that we're going to get along and we're going to agree to disagree. We believe that this issue is of such monumental importance to the church, especially its unity and its mission as well as the method of interpreting Scripture that we must bring this to the fore for everyone to understand. Now those who do not support the ordination of women to pastoral leadership have often been perceived and portrayed as the party of no. But we would rather be portrayed as the party of yes. Do we believe that women and men are of equal value, status, and dignity? Yes. Do we believe that the church, the Seventh-day Adventist church as a church has failed to use women in the church to their fullest potential? Yes. Do we believe that there are some functions in the church that women can fulfill better than men? Yes. Do we believe that women can preach and teach? Yes. Do we believe that God has a very special place for women in ministry? Yes. But do we believe that women should be ordained as local elders or to pastoral leadership? From the beginning of time, God says yes, and then sometimes qualifies it with a no. Yes, you can eat from all of the trees in the garden, but no, you cannot eat from this specific one. Is God a member of the party of no? because He forbade Adam and Eve from eating of one tree? Is God a member of the party of no, because He allows women to occupy virtually every position that is open in the church except that of elder or pastor? I don't believe that we can say that God is a member of the party of no. God is a member of the party of yes. Now the purpose of a keynote address is to set the tone for the entire discussion that's going to take place in the next three days. I will therefore bring several issues to the fore, and then offer a few brief remarks about each one. The speakers that will be with us in the next three days will then, along with the panel discussions, deal with many of the things that I'm going to bring up much more extensively and exhaustively. I would like to begin my remarks with a wise quotation from the pen of Ellen White. In the book Counsels to Writers and Editors, page 40, Ellen White had this to say, It is important that in defending the doctrines which we consider fundamental articles of faith, 
we should never allow ourselves to employ arguments that are not wholly sound. These may avail to silence an opposer, but they do not honor the truth. We should present sound arguments that will not only silence our opponents, but will bear the closest and most searching scrutiny. So in this symposium we are going to do our utmost to present biblical material, biblical answers to questions. We are going to provide answers that have been looked at from many different angles, and we trust that what we present will be seen not only as logical, but as biblical in its foundation. Now I'm going to share with you several of the issues that are involved in the discussion on women's ordination. And then, as I mentioned, I'm going to provide a very brief response to these. Now, I have several of them. Actually, I have 40. And you're saying, are you ever going to be able to finish? Well, I'm hoping that I will be able to finish, but these are what I believe the most significant issues regarding the matter of the ordination of women. The first that I would like to mention is that some state that the Bible neither approves nor forbids the ordination of women. Now this might be technically true, but as you examine scriptures you find constantly a male pattern of leadership that has been established by God. I want to share with you all of those indications in scripture of male leadership according to God's plan. I believe that John Peters will show that Adam was given the leadership role at creation. After sin, the firstborn males were the spiritual leaders of each household. When God established Israel, He chose twelve males as the founders of the tribes. The regional leaders that were established in the days of Moses, which were the thousands, the hundreds, the fifties, and the tens, were all male. The seventy elders that were chosen by Moses, which was kind of like a general conference executive committee of that time, was all composed of males. All of the priests of the Old Testament were males. All of the Levites, which would be equivalent, I believe, to the deacons today, they took care of the temple and the offerings and, and cleaning up and so on, which is the role of the deacons today. All of them were males. Of the 42 kings in the history of Israel and Judah, all of them were males, with the exception of Athaliah, who was a usurper. The 12 apostles that Jesus established were all males. The 70 that Jesus sent out were all males. The successor of Judas was chosen from two males that had been chosen from a larger pool of males. The seven deacons were all males. Paul and Barnabas, of course, were males. The apostles and elders who were delegates at the Jerusalem council were all males. Paul's criteria was that uh, the, those who are leaders in the church, the elders and the bishops, must be the husbands of one wife. And then you have, of course, Timothy and Titus that were ordained as elders, both males. There is not a single case in all of Scripture where a woman was ordained as an elder or as a pastor of a church. 
And so as you look at the preponderance of the evidence in Scripture, it becomes very clear that God's pattern of leadership is males. Ellen White has warned us about the dangers of doing things that are not strictly forbidden in Scripture. I read from the book Great Controversy, page 289, where Ellen White explains about the Roman Catholic Church. Rome began by enjoining what God had not forbidden, and she ended by forbidding what He had explicitly enjoined. The argument that the Bible permits that which it does not forbid sends us down a very dangerous slippery slope. Let's take just one example. The historical evidence indicates that the early church began celebrating sunrise services in commemoration of the resurrection of Christ. At first they did it on a yearly basis and then they started doing it on a weekly basis. Now I have found no clear biblical evidence that would say that this is alright or that this is forbidden. And yet in a very short period of time what happened was that the church enjoined the celebration of sunrise services in honor of the resurrection and came to forbid the observance of the Holy Sabbath. Just because the Bible does not forbid something does not mean that it's right. The Bible does not forbid women's ordination explicitly, but its unanimous testimony is that the practice is reserved for qualified men. There is not even one example in all of the Bible of a woman who was ever ordained to any office. Another argument that is used is that Huldah was a leader in Israel, and therefore we should have women leaders in the church today. Now the important thing is that Huldah did provide guidance to the king. The king, by the way, was Josiah. Now the king decided whether he would follow her counsel or not. You see, Huldah was not the leader, she was a counselor of the leader. Huldah provided guidance to the king, but the king decided whether he would follow her advice or not. The important thing to remember here is that Huldah did not take over the reins of leadership in Judah. She did not take over the throne or the priesthood to clean up the apostasy. She was merely the messenger that God chose to encourage Josiah to lead out in the needed reformation in the kingdom of Judah. Huldah did not clean up the mess. It was Josiah, the elders, and the priests as the leaders of Judah who took her counsel to heart and led out in the necessary changes. It was the king who ordered the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The priests, the prophets, and all of the people came out because the king told them to come out to renew the covenant. It was the king who then commanded Hilkiah to clean up the temple and the land from the, from the paraphernalia that had been used in the pagan cultists. And it was the king who commanded the unfaithful priests to be slain. And it was the king who was extolled by the Lord for being a faithful leader. You can read the story. The center of the story is the king. The king is pulling all of the strings as the leader, but Huldah is helping in the sense that she's providing counsel as to how the leader should proceed. In this sense, Huldah is very similar 
to a prophet that existed recently, which is Ellen White. Another argument that is used in favor of women's ordination is the idea that because Deborah was a judge in Israel, that women should be allowed to serve as pastors and elders in the church today. There are several factors that we need to take into mind when we talk about Deborah. First of all, Deborah served in a very chaotic period of Israel history. The system of judges was not God's organizational ideal. Furthermore, Ellen White makes it very clear that she served in the absence of the usual magistrates. She was an exceptional case, in other words. It's interesting to notice that this did not set a precedent for other women judges in Israel, and it did not come up as a result that you would have other women elected as judges regionally according to the desires of the people. Amen. Furthermore, the Bible says that she judged private and civil things, not at the gate like the usual judges would do, but under a tree. You see, Deborah advised and encouraged the leader Barak to summon and to lead the troops. Barak was the one who summoned the troops. He was the one who led the troops. He was the one who pursued the enemy. In other words, Deborah is serving as a prophet to encourage the leader to do his job. Furthermore, it's interesting to notice that later on Samuel retold the story of what happened in the days of Deborah, and he mentions Barak as the hero of the story, and does not even mention Deborah. That's found in 1 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 11. And when the book of Hebrews mentions this story, it does not mention Deborah at all. Once again, Hebrews 11 and verse 32 mentions Barak as the one who delivered Israel. And it's interesting that Deborah was not the one who delivered Israel. The one who really killed the king was a woman called Hael. So all of these things clearly indicate that this was an exceptional case. She was playing the role more of a prophet than taking over the reins of leadership in Israel. Another argument that is brought up is concerning Junia. Supposedly Junia was the first female apostle in history, and I'm sure that Ingo Sorke is going to talk a little bit about Junia, but I'll just give you a few interesting details. First of all, it's debatable whether the name Junia is male or female. Secondly, it is inconclusive from the text whether Junia was a well-known apostle or whether she was well-known to the apostles. Adventists have always believed that clear texts must explain the texts that are unclear. In every other instance in the New Testament where you have apostles by, named by name, they are always males. The twelve apostles were male. The successor of Judas was male. Paul and Barnabas were males, as well as all of the other ones in the New Testament, all of the other apostles that are mentioned by name were male. And so the biblical evidence seems to clearly indicate that Junia was not an apostle. Now, some people say, yeah, but, but what about Phoebe? Phoebe was a deacon, and she occupied the identical office as the deacons do in the church today. 
But the fact is when you look carefully at the evidence you discover that even though it's true that the word that is used to describe Phoebe, diakonon, is used for the office of a deacon, it is also true that the word diakonon can mean simply servant, someone who serves. And it does not refer most of the time in the New Testament to a church office, it refers simply to the gift of service. No place are we found, do we find in the New Testament that Phoebe was ever ordained to be a deaconess by the laying on of hands. Now we know from the evidence that there were deaconesses in the early church, but we also know that they were ordained by the bishop and they serve under the leadership of the male deacons. We also know that they served only the needs of the women in the congregation. And so it is uncertain that Phoebe was a deacon as is so uh, firmly uh, stated by many who believe in the ordination of women. But then comes Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28 where the Apostle Paul stated that there is neither male nor female. And so as the argument goes, uh, both males and females can now serve as elders and bishops or overseers because there is no longer male nor female. If this is true, why would the Apostle Paul later on write in Timothy and Titus that the elder or the overseer must be the husband of one wife? Is it possible then that what happened with Paul is that at the beginning Paul was an egalitarian, in other words he believed that males and females could both serve as elders and bishops, and then a little later on in his ministry when he wrote First and, uh, First and Second Timothy and Titus, he said, no, no, you know, I think that now uh, you know, we need to restrict it just to males. Well the fact is the biblical evidence clearly shows that Galatians 3.28 cannot mean that women can be elders and overseers because the Apostle Paul later says that elders and overseers must be the husband of one wife. Now there are four ways of looking at Galatians 3 verse 28. One way is when it says there is neither male nor female, uh, it means that there are no longer any biological gender distinctions today. Well, besides being physiologically untrue, this would reverse the gender distinctions, distinctions that God established at creation. Doesn't the Bible say that God created male and female? Of course. Paul would then be overturning the creation order because God created a clear distinction between male and female. So we eliminate possibility number one. Possibility number two is that there are no longer any marital gender, gender distinctions. But if this were true, Paul would once again be reversing the creation order because God established heterosexual marriage at the beginning when he married male and female. The third possibility is that there are no longer any role distinctions in the home or in the church because there's no longer any male or female. That their roles today, in other words, are totally interchangeable. If this were true, Paul would once again be reversing the creation order. John Peters is going to show us that God established specific roles for males and females in the Garden of Eden before sin. He established that the man should be the head, he should be the leader, and the woman should submit to the authority of the husband 
or the man. So if Paul meant that there are no longer any role distinctions, once again he would be going against the creation order that God established at the very beginning. The fourth option I believe is the correct one. It's the idea that male and female have equal access to salvation and are equally members of the family of God. The context indicates that very clearly. The context is speaking about the incorporation rite. It's speaking about baptism, the entrance into a relationship with Christ, the entrance into the church. The context of Galatians 3 verse 28 clearly reveals that Paul is describing the initiation rite into the Christian life. He was not dealing with church offices, particularly the church offices of elder and bishop, which come much later on in the Christian experience. You know, one of the characteristics that is given in the lists that the Apostle Paul gives in 1 Timothy and Titus is that the one who occupies the office of bishop or elder must not be a neophyte. In other words, must not be a new believer. So how could someone, Galatians 3.28, who has just been baptized and joined Christ, how could that mean that that person now can serve as a bishop or as an elder of the church. It doesn't fit the context. Another argument that is used frequently is that it is certain that in our Western culture it is required that we be absolutely egalitarian in our ordination practices. Society might consider us sexist if we ordain only males. So in order to reach culture, we must be sensitive to its desires. But I must underline that our standard is not what society wants. Yes. Our standard is what the Word of God prescribes. Amen. Society also strongly pushes for gay marriage mm -hmm. and for evolution. Should we then change our views on marriage and creation to adjust to the demands of culture? Should we fear the embarrassment of being called fundamentalists, obscurantists, and Stone Age Christians because we still uphold traditional marriage, a literal seven-day creation, and proper leadership roles within the home and the church? Absolutely not. We must uphold the absolute authority of Scripture at the risk of ridicule and even of persecution. This is no time to give in to peer pressure that would lower the standard that God gives us in Holy Scripture. Amen. Ellen White in the book Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 289, had this to say, There are many in the church who at heart belong to the world, but God calls upon those who claim to believe the advanced truth she also calls it present truth, and she calls it the truth for this time. So, so she says, but God calls upon those who claim to believe the advanced truth to rise above the present attitude of the popular churches of today. Where is the self-denial? Where is the cross-bearing that Christ has said should characterize His followers? The reason we have had so little influence, listen, we say, well, we need to ordain women, that way we'll have more influence. Listen to what she says. The reason we have had so little influence upon unbelieving relatives and associates is that we have manifested little decided difference in our practices from those of the world. Parents need to awake 
and purify their souls by practicing the truth in their home life. When we reach the standard that the Lord would have us reach, listen carefully now, worldlings will regard Seventh-day Adventists as odd, singular, straight-laced extremists. We are made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels, and to men. And so if we think that we need to please the world uh, so that the world doesn't consider us odd, we're going down the wrong road. Another argument that is used is that in the Old Testament it is certain that there were male priests, but under the New Covenant now we, we have the priesthood of all believers, and that means that both males and females can serve as pastors and elders. But those who argue in this manner many times fail to realize that the priesthood of all believers already existed in the Old Testament. According to Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6, God called all Israel to be a priesthood, to share the gospel with the nations. But in the same chapter we're told that God chose males from the house of Aaron to, be, to occupy the specialized office of priest. And so all of Israel was a priesthood, but God chose males from the house of Aaron to be the leaders, the spiritual leaders in Israel. In the same manner, God has called all Christians to be a holy priesthood, to proclaim, as it says in 1 Peter, the praises of Him who called them out of darkness into His marvelous light. But this does not eliminate the fact that the spiritual leaders of the church must be the husbands of one wife. Another argument that is used in favor of women's ordination is the idea that Ellen White was ordained and that she was issued ministerial credentials. This myth has been passed along as gospel truth by many of those who favor women's ordination. The evidence provided in this symposium, particularly on Sabbath morning, will clearly and irrefutably reveal that Ellen White was never ordained by the laying on of human hands, even though she did receive an honorary ministerial credential for several years, but one of those credentials, the word ordained, is crossed off, because Ellen White was never ordained by the laying on of hands. Another argument that is used is that the word head does not really mean head, that the word head in the New Testament actually means source or origin. The interesting thing is I checked out all of the Bible versions and the word kephale in the New Testament is always translated head. It is used 77 times in the New Testament according to what I was able to determine and not once is it translated source or origin. It simply means head. Nowhere do you find in the New Testament a, a variant meaning of this word. It's true that once in a blue moon, in classical, extra-biblical literature, you might have a reference to the word kephale, meaning source or origin, but that meaning is alien to Holy Scripture. Another argument that is used is that the expression husband of one wife really means faithful to your spouse. You see, that's very gender inclusive. And others even say that a better translation is one woman man. Of course, to get rid of the gender, gender specification. 
but it bears noting that the vast majority of Bible versions dispute those renderings. Not a single version that I was able to find translates one woman man, and only a handful of less popular versions translate faithful to their spouse. It bears noting that the words husband and wife are very gender specific there in uh, 1 Timothy and Titus. The words gune are used and the word aner is used. Aner means husband or man and gune means wife. They're the identical words that are used, for example, in Ephesians 5.25 where it says, Husbands, love your wives. Would it be proper to translate, men, love your women? No, it means husband, love your wives. In other words, uh, the, it's very, very gender specific. When Paul says that the elder or the bishop must be the husband of one wife, he means exactly that, the husband of one wife. He must be male. Now another argument that is used is the idea that when Paul said that um, he would not allow a woman to teach or to have ex exercise authority of the man because uh, the man was created first and then the woman, you know, those who favor women's ordination come up with the idea that there was this Ephesian heresy that was being taught by the women in the church of Ephesus, to whom uh, Paul is writing here, uh, that uh, Eve had been created first and then Adam. And the Apostle Paul is simply setting them straight that, uh, that uh, actually Adam was created first and then the woman. The fact is, folks, that it's not necessary to inject into Scripture a historical context that even reputable historians have questioned. There's no evidence in the text that this heresy was being taught by the women from Ephesus. It is injecting an argument into Scripture that is not found in Scripture. That is called, by the way, eisegesis. Wouldn't it be much better simply to take what the Apostle Paul says at face value and go all the way back to Genesis and say that it is significant that the man was created first and then woman, and that the woman came from man and not man from the woman, and leave it at that, and simply take Paul's argument as it is found in Scripture instead of injecting an artificial context into Scripture? Amen. Now, some people say, well, the idea of male headship is a negative thing, that only comes in after sin came into the world. But the question is, if male headship or leadership is a bad thing, how do we explain Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3, where the Apostle Paul says that God the Father is the head of Christ? Is that a bad thing? Obviously not. He also says that Christ is the head of the man. Is that a bad thing? That certainly would not be a bad thing, but when it comes to the point of saying that the man is the head of the woman, that is a bad thing. <laughs> That's what they say. But the headship is not in itself a bad thing. Is it a bad thing that Christ is the head of the church? Absolutely not. Is it actually bad for the physical head to exercise loving lordship over your body? Do the physical head and body have an egalitarian relationship? Now the head and the body both mutually need each other, don't they? But should the body exercise authority over the head? Or should the body submit to the loving authority of the head? You see, the head is a good thing. 
because the head loves the body and wants the body to function well. The head needs a body, but the body definitely needs the head. Another idea that comes up is that uh, the idea of male headship uh, gives people the idea that this means that women are to be subservient to men and they should be oppressed by men. That's the way that they look at headship. And I know that uh, Ingo is going to be dealing a lot with headship in the New Testament. That is a, a, a wrong caricature of what real headship is. You see, headship is not something bad. Is it bad that God the Father is the head of Christ? Absolutely not. Is it bad that Christ is the head over the man? Absolutely not. You see, the word head and the word headship are not necessarily bad in themselves. Another argument that came up recently, which was brought out by the Andrews University Theological Seminary, they came out with a statement that Christ is the only head of the church, and therefore there can be no male leaders in the church that are heads at all. In fact, they stated that if we teach that there are heads in the church under the headship of Christ, that that is equivalent to the Roman Catholic heresy of the, of the Pope being the head of the church. Now, at Tosk there were three groups. There was group number one that believed that women should not be ordained uh, as uh, pastoral leaders in the church. There was group number two that believed that uh, women should be ordained because the roles of men and women are identical. And then there was group number three that believed that, uh, you know, we should allow for the ordination of women even though God's plan originally at creation was for male leadership in the home and in the church. Now, let's talk a little bit about this idea of headship. In the Old Testament, Moses was the head of Israel under the unique headship of Jesus Christ. In fact, under Moses there were also heads. Notice Exodus chapter 18 and verse 25. You remember that Moses established uh, leaders of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. You know, it's interesting uh, as you really look at this that uh, it, it, it is reflected very closely to the system of organization of the Adventist church. You know, many people don't think of the organization of Israel as being a representative style of governance. You know, they think that God spoke to Moses and then Moses imposed everything on the people. No, Israel had a representative style of government. And you say, how's that? Well, uh, Moses would be equivalent to the General Conference president. The leaders of the tribes would be equivalent to the divisions. The thousands would be equivalent to the unions. The hundreds would be equivalent to the conferences. The fifties would be equivalent maybe to the mission. And the tens would be equivalent to the local church. And the priests would be equivalent to the pastors. And the deacons would be the Levites. You know, there's a strong argument that you could use to show that even though our terminology is different, the organization of Israel was very similar to the organization of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And Ellen White said that the organization of Israel was a perfect organization. Now, in Exodus 18.25, we're told about those who worked under Moses, the leaders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Listen how the word head is used and also rule. It says there, And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them what? Heads 
Oh, there's that nasty little word. And made them heads over the people. Rulers. Ah, notice the heads are what? Rulers. Over thousands, rulers over hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And it's interesting, in Testimonies to Ministers, page 341, Ellen White, speaking about this text, says, This counsel is for us. It should be heeded by our responsible men. In the book Confrontation, page 25, Ellen White makes this interesting comment. She says, Moses was their visible leader. While Christ stood at the head of the armies of Israel, their invisible leader. And so there was a visible leader, which was Moses, under the leadership of the invisible leader, which was Jesus Christ. I'd like to read a couple of interesting statements from Ellen White on the role of the leaders in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the pastoral leaders. The first of these statements is found in Acts of the Apostles, page 122, and there's a specific phrase that I want us to notice. It is the phrase, in his stead. That means, by the way, instead. Now listen carefully. Since his ascension, Christ has carried forward his work on the earth by chosen ambassadors, through whom he speaks to the children of men and ministers to their needs. The great head of the church superintends his work through the instrumentality of men ordained by God to act as his representatives. That's Acts of the Apostles 360. Now I'm going to read Acts of the Apostles 122. She's speaking about Ananias. Remember when Ananias laid his hands upon Saul? Ellen White makes this comment. In this case, Ananias represents Christ and also represents Christ's ministers upon the earth who are appointed to act in his stead. In Christ's stead, Ananias touches the eyes of Saul that they may receive sight. In Christ's stead, he places his hands upon him, and as he prays in Christ's name, Saul receives the Holy Ghost. All is done in the name and by the authority of Christ. Christ is the fountain, the church is the channel of communication. But this is my favorite, Gospel Workers, page 11. She says, while Christ is the minister in the sanctuary above, he is also, through his delegates, the minister of his church on the earth. Amen. So he calls them delegates. He speaks to the people through chosen men. He carries forward his work through them, as when in the days of his humiliation he moved visibly upon the earth. Although centuries have passed, the lapse of time has not changed his parting promise to his disciples. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. From Christ's ascension to the present day, men ordained of God, deriving their authority from Him, have become teachers of the faith. Christ, the true shepherd, superintends His work through the instrumentality of these under-shepherds. So there is the great shepherd and the under-shepherds. The great head and those who are heads under the great head. She continues saying, 
Thus the position of those who labor in word and doctrine becomes very important. In Christ's stead they beseech the people to be reconciled to God. The people should not regard their ministers as mere public speakers and orators, but as Christ's ambassadors receiving their wisdom and power from the great head of the church. To slight and disregard the words spoken by Christ's representative, that's interesting, by Christ's representative is showing disrespect not only to the man, but also to the master who has sent him. He is in Christ's stead, and the voice of the Savior should be heard in His representative. How could it be more explicit? By the way, the difference between head and leader is a matter of semantics. The word headship is disliked for no other reason than the fact that it is a strong word, headship. But headship basically means leadership. You know, I looked up the meaning of the word um, head in Webster's 1828 edition, which is probably the one that Ellen White would have used, and it has this definition, head, to lead, to direct, to act as leader. So to distinguish between head and leader is an artificial distinction. Another argument that is used is that according to the Bible many women served as prophets. If a woman can be a prophet, why can't she be an elder or a pastor? After all, isn't the office of prophet of higher rank than the office of pastor? Not according to Ellen White. In uh, the book, uh, volume 6 of the Testimonies, page 411, Ellen White had this to say, There must be no belittling of the gospel ministry. No enterprise should be so conducted as to cause the ministry of the word to be looked upon as an inferior matter. It is not so. Those who belittle the ministry are belittling Christ. And now listen, the highest of all work is ministry in its various lines and it should be kept before the youth that there is no work more blessed of God than that of the gospel minister. So this idea that the rank of prophet is up here and the gift of pastor is way down here, so if Ellen White could be a prophet, you know, why can't women be elders and pastors of the church? Simply does not hold water. You see, the gift of prophecy is a spiritual gift that is given by God without regard to gender. There were many women prophets in Scripture. However, the role of prophet must be not be mingled or mixed with the role of elder or pastor. They are two different things. The Bible allows for gender inclusiveness when it comes to prophets, but it does not allow for gender inclusiveness when it comes to elders and pastors of the church. Some people say, but Ellen White was the leader of the, of the Seventh-day Adventist denomination, so why can't uh, women be leaders of the church today? Well, the fact is, folks, that Ellen White fulfilled the same role that was fulfilled, for example, by Huldah and Deborah. She delivered messages from God to the leaders. She corrected the leaders. She encouraged the leaders of the church when they were discouraged but she never took over the reins of leadership at any level in the Seventh-day Adventist denomination. She never occupied a position as pastor all the way up to general conference president. She was not called Pastor Helen or Elder White. 
she was called Sister White. Ellen White herself said in volume 8 of the Testimonies 236 and 237, no one has ever heard me claim the position of leader of the denomination. He has not provided that the burden of leadership shall rest, listen carefully, shall rest upon a few men. Responsibilities are distributed among a large number of competent men. Every member of the church has a voice, now notice the process, every member of the church has a voice in choosing officers of the church. The church chooses the officers of the state conferences. Delegates chosen by the state's conferences choose the officers of the union conferences. And delegates chosen by the union conferences choose the officers of the general conference. That's the way that we do our elections. She says, by this arrangement, every conference, every institution, every church, and every individual, either directly or through representatives, has a voice, listen carefully, in the election of the men who bear the chief responsibilities in the general conference. Neither then, that is when the work was just starting, nor since the work has grown to large proportions, during which time responsibilities have been widely distributed, has anyone heard me claiming the leadership of this people? So Ellen White herself says that she wasn't a leader of this people. Ellen White was a counselor, she encouraged, she corrected, just like Huldah and Deborah did, and all of the biblical prophets. Amen. But she did not take over the leadership roles, but she helped the leaders in the process. Another argument that is used is that uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verses 3 to 15 is a cultural thing that applied only to the times of the Apostle Paul. You see, because it says there that women should wear a veil. And we don't have women wear veils anymore in the church. So they say, see, that was just a custom of the time. But we need to understand that even though the wearing of the veil was a custom of the time, there was a principle behind it, and the principle does not vary or change. The principle is male headship. The way of announcing it publicly and manifesting it publicly was that the woman wore the veil, recognizing her submission to male authority. In other words, the submission of a woman to male authority is timeless, although the way of manifesting the principle varies from culture to culture. Let me give you an illustration. A few years ago, I went to the home of uh, uh, one of the individuals uh, of a church that I visited, and uh, I noticed that there was a stack of books on a table there, and uh, under all of the books was a Bible. Now, we all know that the proper place to put the Bible is always on top of all of the other books, right? There's no other way of doing it. That's the way we have to do it. You put it on top. And so I was bothered. I looked at that Bible at the bottom, and you know, it was just, it, it just eating me up. <laughs> so finally I said to him, I said, listen, I, I, I need to know, why do you put the Bible under all of those books? The Bible's supposed to be on top of all knowledge. And he looked at him and he says, well, that's true, the Bible is on top of all knowledge, but it is also the foundation of all knowledge. <laughs> now what is the principle? The principle is that the Bible is above all knowledge. But the way in which that is expressed can vary from culture to culture. Are you with me or not? And so the veil was the way of manifesting male headship and female submission. But it doesn't mean that 1 Corinthians 11 no longer applies to us today. 
Another argument that is used is that certain women uh, in Adventist history were ordained as pastors and elders. Well, I can answer this very quickly. There is no evidence whatsoever in the history of the Adventist church that women were ever ordained or received a ministerial credential until recent times. Ellen White is the only woman in the history of the Adventist church until recent times who received a ministerial credential. Other women received ministerial licenses. And I have some quotations where it clearly says that ministerial credentials are given to ordained pastors, ministerial licenses are given to those who have not yet been ordained. There is a clear distinction. Many women receive ministerial licenses, but no women except Ellen White received a ministerial credential, and Ellen White received it more as an honorary thing. Another argument that is used in favor of women's ordination is that ordination was approved at the 1881 General Conference session. I want to read uh, from Review and Herald, December 20, 1881, page 392, about the resolution that was taken at that General Conference session. Resolved that females possessing the necessary qualifications to fill that position, that is of elder pastor, may with perfect propriety be set apart by ordination to the work of the Christian ministry. And so it sounds like uh, the general conference session approved the ordination of women pastors. But when you look carefully at the evidence, nothing such as this really took place. You see, after the resolution was read, it was actually uh, a motion. A re resolution was a motion. After it was read at the general conference session, it was discussed. We know that at least eight individuals spoke to that specific issue. And a vote was taken by the general conference session to refer this to the general conference executive committee. And in the executive committee, it died until 1990 when it resurrected in Indianapolis and resurrected again in 1995 in Utrecht. And both of those times, the General Conference did not refer it to the Executive Committee. The General Conference in session said no. In fact, the North American Division brought the resolution to allow for the ordination of women at the General Conference sessions of 1990 and 1995. It was debated on the floor, and it was rejected by the delegates. After two individuals at Utrecht presented the biblical evidence, everyone was persuaded that Dr. Dr. Domstick presented the more persuasive case from Scripture. Another argument that is used is that the missionary outreach of the church is being negatively impacted by a failure to ordain women to pastoral leadership. Actually, folks, statistics show that churches that have decided to ordain women have generally experienced a decrease in church growth. The church is growing phenomenally outside of the so-called developed countries, and they don't ordain women. In fact, I remember at Tosk, in one of the sessions at Tosk, I think it was maybe the first or the second, you know, uh, the, this argument was being used that in order, in order for, for the church to grow, we need to ordain women, and when we ordain women, then the church is going to experience explosive growth. I remember a gentleman stood from Africa, uh, a, a PhD, 
And he said, you know, I keep on hearing this uh, about, you know, if we ordain women to the gospel ministry, uh, that the result is going to be explosive growth in the church. He says, you know, we have a very clear stand in our field, and we don't ordain women as pastors, and we're experiencing explosive growth. <laughs> you could hear a pin drop. <laughs> Nobody could come to the microphone and contradict him, because there are places in the world where the church is grown phenomenally, and they don't ordain women. In fact, there are some scholars who are saying that God is never going to pour out the latter rain until we ordain women. I don't find that any place in Scripture, that a condition for uh, receiving the latter rain is to ordain women as gospel ministers. Another argument that is used is that uh, women today uh, have been called to the ministry, they feel like God has called them, and therefore we should accept uh, their feelings as, uh, as, you know, God accepting them being called into gospel uh, ministry and into ordination. But we believe that it's not feelings that dictate whether something is in harmony with the will of God. It is scripture that tells us whether it is in harmony or not, not impressions and feelings. In the book Great Controversy 394 and 395, Ellen White is describing some of the fanaticism that arose uh, at the time of the Millerite movement, and she had this to say. About this time, fanaticism began to appear. Some who had professed to be zealous believers in the message rejected the Word of God as the one infallible guide and claimed to be led by the Spirit, gave themselves up to the control of their own feelings impressions and imaginations. There were some who manifested a blind and bigoted zeal, denouncing all who would not sanction their course. Their fanatical ideas and exercises met with no sympathy from the great body of Adventists, yet they served to bring reproach upon the cause of truth. We cannot depend upon feelings and emotions and success in ministry as the litmus test of whether the ordination of women is proper or not. It's the Bible that dictates whether we should do it or not. It's not feelings, it's not emotions, it's not a seeming success in ministry. Another argument which I found which is very interesting is that those who believe in male leadership before the fall, they also have to believe that women are a lesser order of humanity, and I'm quoting, and that women are inferior to men. That is, if you believe in male headship before the fall, automatically, they say, you believe that women are a lesser order of humanity and that women are inferior to men. The fact is, folks, that this is a straw man argument as tall as Nebuchadnezzar's image. <laughs> there is no egalitarian that I know of, there's no individual who, uh, you know, uh, complementarian, excuse me, uh, who believes that God uh, has different roles for men and women, although they are equal in status in the sight of God, there is no complementarian that believes that women are inferior or a lesser order of humanity. That is just simply a fabrication uh, in order to, uh, to cause people to uh, go to the side issue and reject it, not on the basis of, of theological argument, but on the basis of emotions. I'd like to read from the International Standard Encyclopedia. Priority of creation may indicate headship, but not, as theologians have so uniformly affirmed, superiority. 
dependence indicates difference of function, not inferiority. Human values are estimated in terms of the mental and spiritual. Man and woman are endowed for equality and are mutually interdependent. A related argument is that if you don't believe that women should be ordained, ordained to the gospel ministry, then you do not believe in women in ministry. Once again, a gigantic straw man. Those of us on the committee who were opposed to women's ordination to pastoral leadership uh, are very much in favor of women in ministry. In fact, women can occupy virtually every position in ministry in the Seventh-day Adventist Church except for the position of elder or ordained pastor. Those are reserved, according to the Bible, for husbands of one wife. Now it is also claimed that um, there is no parallel between the relationship between God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ and the relationship between man and woman originally when they were created. The fact is that the Bible makes it very clear that God the Father and His Son are two individuals. But the Bible says that even though they are two individuals, they are one, because they are composed of the same substance, they are co-substantial in other words. And the spirit of prophecy and the Bible make it very clear that Christ was subject to the will of His Father even before sin came into the universe. You read the first chapter of the book Patriarchs and Prophets, it comes through very clearly that Jesus is subject to the will of the Father. And when you go to 1 Corinthians 15 verse 28, it makes it very clear that throughout eternity, future, Christ will submit Himself to the authority of His Father. In other words, uh, the Godhead has this idea of two individuals, they are one co-substantially, and the Son is subject to the Father. Now in Genesis 1 verse 26, we find the Father speaking to the Son and saying, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now the image of God is not only that Adam individually is physically, mentally, and spiritually in the image of God, and Eve individually is in the image of God physically, mentally, and spiritually. It means that their relationship is a reflection of the relationship between God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, does the Bible say that Adam and Eve were two individuals? Does the Bible make it clear they're two individuals? Does the Bible also say that they are one? Yeah, they're co-substantial, they're one. Does the Bible teach that the woman is subject to the authority of the man? Oh yeah, you say, I don't like that. Well then you wouldn't like the relationship between the Father and the Son either. Because the Bible says that the image of God in which Adam and Eve were created is a reflection on a human scale of the relationship that exists between the Father and the Son. And as the Son is subject to the Father and He doesn't complain, and He doesn't whine, and He says, I'm not going to submit to anyone, He's perfectly happy, so God has created a system where the man and the woman are two but one, but the woman is to submit to the authority of the man. Another argument that is used is that Ephesians 5 verse 21 states that the husband and the wife, the man and the woman, must be mutually submissive. That's one of the favorites because it says submit one to the other. However, several contextual matters are ignored by using this argument that submission is not the wife to the husband, it's, it's the husband to the wife and the wife to the husband. 
Well the fact is you have to look at the succeeding context to see what the Apostle Paul is saying. In the succeeding context the Apostle Paul then speaks about wives submitting to their husbands, about children submitting to their parents, and about bondservants submitting to their masters. Now my question is, are we to understand that Paul was teaching that submission is a two-way street between parents and children? And children say, oh parents submit to me. Absolutely not. Are we talking here about the Apostle Paul saying that masters and bond servants should be mutually submissive one to another? Are we saying that the commanding angels in heaven are mutually submissive to the angels that they command? Is there any evidence in Scripture that God the Father and God the Son are mutually submissive to one another in an egalitarian relationship? There is no evidence of that. Furthermore, in the very next verse, the Apostle Paul says, along also with verse 24, that's verse 22 and verse 24, the Apostle Paul says, wives submit yourselves to your own husbands. There's not one text in the writings of Paul where he says, husbands submit yourselves to your wives. Besides, in other places, besides uh, this text in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says that wives should submit to their husbands. For example, in uh, Colossians chapter 3 verses 18 and 19, the Apostle Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And then he says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter to them. Not once do we find any text in the writings of the Apostle Paul where he indicates that husbands are to be subject to the authority of their wives. Let me read you a statement from Ellen White. Volume 1 of the Testimonies, page 307 and 308, Ellen White says, The husband is the head of the family, as Christ is the head of the church. So if you don't like uh, the husband as the head of the family, you're not going to like Christ as the head of the church. So the husband is the head of the family, as Christ is the head of the church. And listen carefully. And any course which the wife may pursue to lessen his influence and lead him to come down from that dignified, responsible position is displeasing to God. It is the duty of the wife to yield her wishes and will to her husband. Boy, that would go over like a lead balloon in the world today. Now she, she explains, both should be yielding. That's what it means to be mutual, mutually submissive. But the Word of God gives preference to the judgment of the husband, and it will not detract from the dignity of the wife to yield to him whom she has chosen to be her counselor, advisor, and protector. The husband should maintain his position in his family with all meekness and yet with decision. Very, very clear. I mean, there's no ambiguity here. There, uh, everything that is said in favor of women's ordination, when you look at all of the evidence, it becomes very clear that that evidence is not saying what those who are in favor of women's ordination would like it to say. Another argument that is used is that as slaves were emancipated from bondage to their masters, women should be emancipated from their bondage to men. Of course the question is, is it valid to compare the emancipation of women with the emancipation of slaves? The fact is folks, 
that God established female submission to male leadership before the fall. It was established by God as His ideal, whereas the idea of slavery was invented by man after the fall. Totally different context. Furthermore, this is very important, ordination to the church office of elder or minister is not a right but a calling that is not given to everyone by God. Racial and gender equality are inalienable rights that have been granted by the Creator to all of His creatures, but pastoral ordination is not one of those inalienable rights that have been granted to women by the Creator. To the contrary, God has consistently reserved pastoral ordination in the Bible for men. Basic human rights are different than role distinctions in the church, because rights belong to all human beings, but roles in the church are according to God's calling and do not belong to all. Another argument that is used is that there's a trajectory in Scripture from, from uh, you know, uh, not favoring the ordination of women to eventually favoring the ordination of women. But the fact is they have to go beyond the context of Scripture to argue this. Because as I pointed out before, it becomes very clear that the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.28 says, there is neither male nor female, Galatians was written long before 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. There's no scholar that would say that 1st Timothy and 2nd Timothy and Titus were written before Galatians. And yet in Timothy and Titus the Apostle Paul says, hey, the elder and the bishop must be the husband of one wife. I guess the Apostle Paul at one time was egalitarian and then later on he became a complementarian. If you look at the New Testament evidence, that's what the New Testament evidence indicates. Another argument that is used is that uh, it is certain that spiritual gifts and church offices are interchangeable. They're the same thing, a spiritual gift and a church office. But the fact is that the New Testament makes a very clear distinction between spiritual gifts which are given without regard to gender and church offices which are gender specific. Let me give you an example. Shepherding. You know, in Spanish we have the word, only one word, pastor. Pastor, we have in English. In English we have pastor and we have shepherd. They mean the same thing. Ellen has a statement where she says that men and women can serve as pastors of the flock of God. So some people have said, see, she says that women can be pastors of the flock. The problem is the word pastors, as she uses it, is different than the definition of pastors that we give today. The meaning has changed. For us pastors today mean individuals who have been ordained to be ministers. But in the times of Ellen White, pastors means someone who has the gifts of shepherding. Women were to shepherd children. They were to shepherd other women. But that doesn't mean that they were pastors in the sense that we use the word today. In other words, pastors is one of the spiritual gifts, according to the Apostle Paul. He says, pastors is one of the gifts of the Spirit. But Paul is not speaking of a church office, he's speaking about a spiritual gift. Let me give another example. Evangelism. Did you know that there were many successful women evangelists in the history of the Adventist Church, in the early history? There were some powerful women evangelists. And evangelism is one of the gifts of the Spirit that is mentioned by the Apostle Paul. But the gift of evangelism is not the same as being an elder or being an overseer of the church. 
you're talking about church offices versus a gift that is given for people to function within the confines of the church. Another idea that people present is that it is quite certain that our pioneers were supportive of the idea of women's ordination as elders and pastors of the church. Nothing could be further from the truth. I'm going to read now from two sources of our pioneers. The first is Signs of the Times, December 19, 1878, where J. H. Wagoner, the editor of Signs of the Times, writes this, The divine arrangement from the beginning is this, that the man is the head of the woman. Every relation is disregarded or abused in this lawless age. But the scriptures, notice, the scriptures always maintain this order in the family relation. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Ephesians 5.23 Man is entitled to certain privileges that are not given to woman. And he is subjected to some duties and burdens from which the woman is exempt. A woman may pray, prophesy, exhort, and comfort the church, but she cannot occupy the position of a pastor or ruling elder. This would be looked upon as usurping authority over the man which is here prohibited. And he's commenting on 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12. Another editorial in Signs of the Times in 1895 is a response to a question that was asked should women be elected to offices in the church when there are enough brethren? And this is the answer of the editor. This is 1895, by the way, quite late in the 19th century. This is the answer of the editor. If by this is meant the office of elder, we should say at once, no. But there are offices in the church which women can fill acceptably. And oftentimes there are found sisters in the church who are better qualified for this than brethren. Such offices, for instance, as church clerk, treasurer, librarian of the tract society, etc., as well as the office of deaconess, assisting the deacons. Notice, deaconess is assisting the deacons. Deaconess, assisting the deacons in looking after the poor and in doing such other duties as would naturally fall to their lot. You know, when I read this statement at the Pacific Union constituency session, you could hear people snickering and saying, oh, you, you think that, that women can only serve as clerks and treasurers and librarians of the Tract Society? As if to say, how demeaning to women. The editor continues saying, the qualifications for church elder are set forth in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and Titus 1, 7 through 9. We do not believe that it is in God's plan to give to women the ordained offices of the church. By this we do not, now listen carefully, here's the balance. By this we do not mean to depreciate their labors, service, or devotion. The sphere of woman is equal to that of man. Interesting. She was made a helpmeet or fit for man, but that does not mean that her sphere, that means role, is identical to that of man's. The interests of the church 
and the world generally would be better served if the distinctions given in God's Word were regarded. Always back to the Word. Another argument that is presented sometimes is that, okay, we might be willing to grant that the man should be the head of the home, but that does not translate into the man being also the head in the church, only in the home. Well, the fact is that the Apostle Paul, both in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1, clearly says that if a man is not able to rule his own house, how can he rule the church of God? I found this remarkable statement that I want to share with you. I had not found this statement until a couple of days ago, because the argument is, you know, the home is one place and the church is a different place. But the fact is, in this remarkable statement from Ellen White, she's going to say that the home is a little segment of the church, and the church is composed of many homes. Listen to the way that she expresses this. This is in volume 5 of Manuscript Releases, page 449. She says, the qualifications of an elder are plainly stated by the Apostle Paul. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, nor given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. She's quoting scripture, and now notice what she says. If a man, a what? If a man does not show wisdom in the management of the church in his house, in his own house, of the what? Of the church in his own house, how can he show wisdom in the management of the larger church outside? So what you're saying is that the man should be the leader in the small church, in the home, but then in the larger church it should be a woman. That is incongruent. Notice what she continues saying. How can he bear the responsibilities which mean so much if he cannot govern his own children. Wise discrimination is not shown in this matter. God's blessing will not rest upon the minister who neglects the education and training of his children. He has a sacred trust, and he should in no case set before church members uh, a defective example in the management of his home. Notice the number of times that you have the masculine pronoun in this passage. And for me it was very significant that Ellen White here speaks about the church in his own house and the larger church outside. Another argument that is used that it is that in 1895 Ellen White wrote a statement that shows that she approved the ordination of women as pastors. Well, let me read you the statement. It's found in Review and Herald, July 9, 1895. Ellen White says here, Women who are willing to consecrate some of their time. You begin to notice that this is not talking about pastoral ministry, this is a part-time thing. 
some of their time to the servants of the Lord should be appointed, now listen to what the, the job description is, to visit the sick, look after the young, and minister to the necessities of the poor. That's the job description of a deaconess, folks. She then says they should be set apart to this work by prayer and the laying on of hands. See, we should lay hands upon them, they say. Well, we'll come back to that in a moment. In some cases they will need to counsel with the church officers or the minister. This shows that they weren't pastors or ministers. If they have to counsel with the church officers or ministers. But if they are devoted women, maintaining a vital connection with God, they will be a power for good in the church. This is another means of strengthening and building up the church. Another means besides the ordained pastorate. Now, let me just mention something which is very, very important. And that is that uh, those who favor women's ordinations many times will say, uh, when you distinguish between uh, Ellen White's 1895 statement saying that you can ordain deaconesses, but that you can't ordain pastors or elders, that's an artificial distinction is what they say. Ordination is ordination. Laying on of hands is uh, the same. It doesn't make any difference. Well, you know, I did some research in the writings of Ellen White and I discovered something very interesting. Ellen White uses the expression laying on of hands many times. And she uses the word ordination many times. She will use laying on of hands to refer, for example, to laying hands on missionary physicians. And laying on hands like I just read in this 1895 statement. But she never uses the word ordination in conjunction with those other cases where she speaks about laying on of hands. For Ellen White there was a distinction between laying on of hands and ordination. Let me give you several examples and I'll only give you the references. The word ordination is used regarding the twelve. She says Jesus laid hands on them and ordained them. Acts of the Apostles page 18. It is used for the 70 male elders that were chosen by Moses. Ellen White says that hands were laid on them in their ordination. It is used also for Paul and Barnabas. Hands were laid upon them in ordination, Ellen White states. That's Acts of the Apostles 161. Uh, the case of Moses ordaining the 70 elders uh, is Acts of the Apostles, page 94. You know, Ellen White, in writing to lay workers, had this to say, upon whom human hands have never been laid in ordination. She's talking about lay people. She's saying, hands of ordination might not have been laid upon you, but that doesn't mean that you don't have a work to perform. Notice she says, hands laid upon you in ordination. She's talking about separating ministers. Uh, also, she wrote to wives of pastors, and she said, although the hands of ordination have not been laid upon her. Once again, laying hands of ordination. Ordination with laying on of hands applying to the pastoral ministry. Never used of missionary physicians, never used of women deaconesses. In those cases it is only laying on of hands. It is not ordination by laying on of hands. Writing to the young people of the church, this is Messages to Young People, page 226, Ellen White wrote this, Dear young friends, remember that it is not necessary to be an ordained minister 
in order to serve the Lord. There are many ways of working for Christ. Human hands may never have been laid on you in ordination, but God can give you fitness for His service. Laying on of hands by what? By ordination. Never does she use ordination for any of the other setting aparts, only for the gospel ministry. Jesus laid hands on children, didn't He? So I guess He was ordaining children, right? No, He wasn't ordaining. Jesus laid hands on the sick, so I guess Jesus was ordaining the sick. No, absolutely not. The fact is that laying on of hands could take many forms and many shapes, but ordination by the laying on of hands is applied exclusively to the ordination of gospel ministers. I'd like to read the statement where Ellen White refers to uh, the missionary physicians. This is Councils on Health, page 540. She says, The work of the true medical missionary is largely a spiritual work. It includes prayer and the laying on of hands. Notice that ordination is not used, the laying on of hands. He therefore should be as sacredly set apart for his work as is the minister of the gospel. Those who are selected to act the part of missionary physicians are to be set apart as such. Is that talking about setting them apart as elders and pastors? No, as such as missionary physicians. She continues saying, this will strengthen them against the temptations to withdraw from the sanitarium work to engage in private practice. No selfish motive should be allowed to draw the worker from his post of duty. In other words, Ellen White says, ordain them. And when they've been set apart, or not ordain them, but set hands on them, and when you have set hands on them, separated them for missionary service, then they're going to think twice before they decide to go into private practice to make money because they'll real, remember that they have been dedicated to the Lord's service. Another argument that is used is that it's quite certain that the practice of ordination by the laying on of hands was embraced by the Roman Catholic Church from pagan Rome, and that the Seventh-day Adventist Church view of ordination is identical, and therefore ordination should be discarded altogether. The problem with that is that ordination is a biblical practice. It was practiced in the Old Testament when Moses laid his hands on Joshua, when the priests and Levites were set apart, when the seventy were set apart, when the leaders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens were set apart, when the apostles were ordained, when the deacons were ordained, when the elders were ordained, they were separated by the laying on of hands. So how can you say that ordination came into the Adventist church through the Roman Catholic Church that embraced it from paganism. The SDA view of ordination, by the way, is not and has never been sacramental as it is in the Roman Catholic Church. We do not believe, nor have we ever believed, that there is any virtue in the act itself or in the words of consecration. We have never believed that ordination confers supernatural miraculous power, or that it confers authority above that of Scripture. This is a big straw man argument, because none of us have ever believed the way that it is portrayed. It is meant to distract from the real issues involved in the discussion. This argument is irrelevant to Seventh-day Adventist practice. Another, are we doing well? Yeah? Another argument that is used, and I quote now, 
this appeared in Spectrum recently, very recently, could it be possible that the shameful statistics of violence aimed largely at women around the world might have something to do with the resistance to women's ordination? And you laugh, and I laughed when I read it too. Now listen folks, the implications of this are very serious. If this were true, then God would be to blame for the abuse of women in the Old Testament, because God established the patriarchal system. Jesus would be to blame for electing twelve male apostles, and the apostle Paul would be to blame for insisting that elders must be the husbands of one wife. This is another straw man argument that awakens strong emotions and that is intended to distract from the fact that the Bible does not approve of the ordination of women. Another argument that is used is that even though women's ordination is not God's ideal plan, we should allow it as a plan B, even on a regional basis for three purposes, to preserve unity in the church, secondly to, to conserve the uh, integrity of the mission of the church, and to guarantee everyone freedom of conscience. Well the fact is folks, you look at the prime example that is used by those who are proposing this idea, it's the idea of the election of a king in Israel. You know God said, I want, I want to be your ruler, I want to be your king. And the people said, no we want a king just like the cultures around it, it was a cultural issue. And so God said, it's not a good idea folks, and He told them what the implications and what the consequences would be. They said, we could care less, we want our king. And so God said, you want your king? I'm going to allow you to have your king. But He said to Samuel, they have not rejected you, they have rejected me. Now the question is, did this lead to greater unity in Israel? Listen folks, it led to the division of Israel into the ten tribes of the north and the two tribes of the south. In other words, it caused division in Israel. Did it lead Israel to better fulfill its mission? Are you kidding? Israel became defiled with the nations because their kings married the daughters of other kings of other nations, and they lost the knowledge of God, and they came to practice idolatry. Did it lead to greater freedom? No, it led ultimately to bondage in the Babylonian captivity. And so this idea, you know, it's difficult to, to grasp or to understand uh, how people could say that we need to ad adopt a plan B at this stage in human history, when Jesus, the coming of Jesus is even at the door. You know, doesn't God want us to return to the creation ideal, to the ideal of the Garden of Eden? Doesn't God want us to return to the original diet? Or does God say, okay, go ahead with the plan B, you know, keep on eating cholesterol and, and, and you know, keep on getting sick and, and you know, keep on getting cancer, I don't mind, I don't care. God doesn't act that way. God loves us. You know, God says, go back to the original idea, go for the plan A, why would you want a plan B? Does God want us to go back to the original plan with heterosexual marriage? In a culture that says, oh, you know, it's okay for a man to marry a man and a woman a woman. Does God want us to adopt a plan B, like some are suggesting even now in the church? Of course not. The ideal is to go back to the way it was in the beginning. Does God want us to adopt a plan B when it comes to the day of worship? Ah, Sabbath, Sunday, who cares? No. As Adventists, we say we're supposed to return to the creation ideal. Yeah. 
We return to the creation ideal in marriage, to the creation ideal in the Sabbath, to the creation ideal in diet, but not to the creation ideal in roles within the home and the church. Does God want us also to return to the creation ideal when it comes to the relationships between men and women in the church and in the home? Absolutely. He wants us to go all the way back to the beginning. You know, this reminds me of the story when Jesus had his discussion with the Pharisees. They said, it is, okay, is it okay for us uh, to divorce a woman for any reason? And Jesus said, no, it's not all right. And they said, well, Moses said that it was all right. Moses gave us a plan B. And Jesus says, I know that Moses gave you a plan B. I'm just paraphrasing. He says, I know that Moses, it was because of the hardness of your hearts. Just like when Israel elected a king. It was because of the hardness of your hearts that God allowed you to get divorced for any reason. But at the beginning, it was not so. The standard that Jesus returned people to was at the beginning. It was not some plan B uh, in order to supposedly conserve the unity of the church and the integrity of the mission of the church and freedom uh, for everybody. Now another argument that is used is, and, and this is very interesting, is the idea that Priscilla assumed an authoritative teaching role over men. The elect lady of 1 John was a leader of a local church, and the women of the church of Philippi were the leaders of that church. Now I decided that I would check this out because a very notable scholar brought this out. He said Priscilla assumed a leadership, uh, teaching leadership role over men, and the elect lady of 1 John chapter 1, she was a pastor of the church there, and uh, you know the women at Philippi, they were the leaders of the church there. So I said, oh, I'm going to check into this. And I discovered in Philippians 4 verses 2 and 3, the Apostle Paul nowhere says that the women at Philippi were the leaders of the church, it simply says that the women were fellow laborers with the Apostle Paul. Well let me say, my wife is a fellow laborer with me, but that doesn't make her an elder of the church. It doesn't make her a pastor of the church. Furthermore, nowhere are we told in Acts 18 that Priscilla assumed an authoritative teaching role over men. Rather, the text clearly explains that both Aquila and Priscilla both taught Apollos the Word of God more accurately, and it was not in a public worship service, it was privately in the home. There is nothing that would forbid a woman from being a Bible instructor. <laughs> and finally, as to the idea that this elect lady of uh, actually it's 2nd John, not 1st, 2nd John, was an apostle or elder or bishop or pastor of the church, no such thing is found there in the 2nd epistle of John. In fact, Ellen White tells us what the position of this woman was. She was a helper in the gospel work, a woman of good repute and wide influence. There are many women who would fit that description, by the way, in scripture. Women such as Lydia, women such as Dorcas, Priscilla, and other women that are mentioned specifically in the book of Acts. That does not make them elders or pastors of the church. Another argument that is used is that the majority of the members of the Theology of Ordination Committee were in favor of women's ordination. 
And what they do is they say, well, there were 62 in favor and there were 32 against. Now, let me share with you this. The picture is more complicated than this. Let me share with you why. 54 members of the committee agreed that male leadership was established by God before the fall in the home and in the church. 54. Our 32 plus the 22 that belong to group number 3. So basically if you go uh, to how many were believed that a male leadership in the home and in the church was something that got established before the fall, there were 54 that said yes, and there were only 40 that said no. Now what's interesting is that in group number 2, which are those who are in favor of women's ordination because they say that men and women uh, have equal and interchangeable roles, of those 40 there's disagreement because some of them believe that the man is still the leader of the house although he isn't the leader of the church, whereas some of them believe that the man is not the leader in the home or in the church, so there's disagreement among them. Uh, the simple fact is, folks, that the group of 40 and the group of 22 disagree on the basic premises. You see, the group of 40, they believe that men and women have equal and interchangeable roles. Group number 3, which is known as option 3, they say, no, uh, God established that the man should be the head, uh, not the head, but the spiritual leader of the home and of the church, but God will allow His church to adopt a last, less than ideal plan, a plan B. I must say that group number two does not like the premises of group number three, because group number three believes in male leadership in the home and in the church, and so there's dis disagreement even among those who believe in regional ordination. I have two more points that I want us to bring, uh, I want to bring here and present before we bring this to a close. This is a very serious one. Some of those who favor women's ordination are saying that Ted Wilson is opposed to women's ordination and is attempting to impose his will upon the world church. And I'd like to read a paragraph from a very influential ex-biblical languages teacher at the Seventh-day Adventist Seminary at Andrews, where she wrote a personal letter to uh, the General Conference President and uh, it kind of leaked out, and I think it was published by Spectrum, and this is what she wrote. The Western churches that are ready to follow the Holy Spirit's leading in the ordination of women will show the way to the other countries' churches. The Western churches will not split the church, but if you, she's writing to Ted Wilson, try to stop what the Holy Spirit is leading to be accomplished, you will split the church. That's what she wrote to him. The fact is, folks, let me give you a first-hand report. Elder Wilson attended all four meetings of the Theology of Ordination Study Committee. Never, even once, did he express his approval or disapproval of women's ordination. And we have some members of the Theology of Ordination Study Committee here. They can back up what I'm saying. What he did emphasize, and this is important, what he did emphasize 
is that the Seventh-day Adventist Church is a church that operates on the basis of policies, bylaws, and constitutions. And because the World Church voted twice to deny the ordination of women, Elder Wilson has expressed that the will of the World Church must be respected. The decision not to ordain women is not something that has been passed down from the General Conference leaders to the World Church. It has rather been decided by the World Church, and the General Conference officers are simply carrying out the will of the World Church, which is what they have been placed in positions of leadership to do, to uphold the policies and the practices of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Finally, there's this argument that according to denominational policy, it is the prerogative of the unions to approve ordinations. Now let me share with you that, that that's true, but there's a caveat. In our denominational structure, the unions have the right to approve ordinations that are sent to them by the conferences, but they do not have the authority to establish the criteria for those ordinations. In other words, the Central California Conference can send some names to the union of pastors that they want ordained, and the union approves the ordinations, but the union cannot create the criteria for ordination. The criteria is established by the World Church in General Conference session, which means that the General Conference, which means that the Pacific Union has to abide by the criteria that is established. And one of those criteria is that the elder or the minister must be the husband of one wife. And so the union can approve the names that are sent by the conference, but they cannot approve names of women because it goes against the policies of the general conference and the division, and by the way, of the union itself. And so we've covered a lot of ground this evening. I just wanted to give you a bird's eye view of all of the different arguments that are being used. And uh, you know, as we examined these arguments, it becomes very, very clear, at least in my mind, that these arguments that are offered are far from conclusive. In fact, many of them are based on faulty reasoning, they're based on faulty study of Scripture, looking only at partial evidence, redefining words, injecting contexts that are not there, ignoring contexts that are found there. I'd like to read once again the statement that I began with in Councils to Writers and Editors, page 40. It is important that in defending the doctrines which we consider fundamental articles of faith, we should never allow ourselves to employ arguments that are not wholly sound. We have to be careful that we don't use arguments that are wholly sound. What does that mean? That means that when an argument is brought forth, we have to examine it from every angle. We have to look at the context, we have to look at the broader context, we have to look at what the Spirit of Prophecy had to say, we, it would be helpful to look at what others have said about that text, cover all of the bases, ask questions, find 
uh, avenues that perhaps might contradict the understanding that we've gotten from that text. Now that we have to be like lawyers in the study of Scripture, like attorneys. You know, when attorneys are preparing a case to take before a court of law, they are already anticipating all of the uh, other objections that are going to be brought by the other attorneys. They're, they want to present an ironclad case. They research, they scrutinize, they look for all of the evidence so that there are no loose ends. That's what Ellen White says that we must do. Once again, it is important that in defending the doctrines which we consider fundamental articles of faith, we should never allow ourselves to employ arguments that are not wholly sound. Now listen, these may avail to silence an opposer, at least for the time being. You know we can make an opposer look kind of foolish. But then she continues saying, these may avail to silence an opposer, but they do not honor the truth. We should present sound arguments that will not only silence our opponents, but will bear the closest and most searching scrutiny. You know, Ellen White says in the last days, God's people will be brought before tribunals, before the great men of the earth, to present the evidence of their, evidences of their faith. She says that the great men of the earth will examine our arguments. She has even a statement where she says that the great men of the earth will question every single statement that we make. Which means that when we are studying these matters, we must have an ironclad case where there are no loose ends, where there is no way out. We must know, for example, the arguments to, that are made regarding the Sabbath. You know, we usually just, uh, you know, uh, argue for the Sabbath the way that evangelists do. We use the same text over and over again. But, but there are some questions that people ask that perhaps we haven't taken a closer look at. Like, for example, you know, I have a series uh, that I did on the Sabbath. You know, I don't know whether you've noticed in Genesis, but one argument that is brought out by one of the prime enemies of the Adventist church, who used to be a Seventh-day Adventist, he says, look, in Genesis there's no statement whatsoever that says that God commanded Adam and Eve to keep the Sabbath. It says that God rested the seventh day. It doesn't say that God commanded Adam and Eve to rest. And furthermore they say, and you know the, the word for rest in Exodus 20 is different than the word for rest in Genesis. So why, why the change of the word from uh, you know, Shabbat in Genesis to Noach in Exodus 20. And so they say, see, in Genesis, the Sabbath wasn't made for man, the Sabbath uh, was actually God's rest. Another argument that is used is, you know, in Genesis it says that every day of the week had an evening and morning. But it doesn't say there was the evening and the morning of the seventh day. And so the argument is, because it doesn't say there was an evening and morning of the seventh day, God's rest is open to us every day. And it sounds pretty logical, it sounds reasonable. Do we have answers to these things? You know, someday we will have to stand before kings and rulers to give a reason for our faith. If we can't get the issue of women's ordination right, 
What makes us think that we're going to be able to stand before kings and rulers and the great men of the earth to answer concerning the great things that we find in God's holy word? We must go to scripture. Scripture must be our authority. And that's why in this symposium I have underlined to all of the speakers that we need to base what we are saying on a thus saith the Lord. We must base our doctrine and our practice only upon Scripture, not conjecture, not the ideas of men, not what commentaries say, not even what the church has always taught, but a thus saith the Lord. What does the Word of God say? So I believe that we have some exciting times in the next three days. It's going to be very intensive. We're going to start early in the morning. We're going to end late at night. We have about 15 presentations. We have three panel discussions. We have a town hall meeting at the end where people will be able to ask questions live. And uh, it's going to be a marvelous experience. I believe that for the weekend, uh, we're probably going to have this place pretty well packed. And so you all better make sure that you come early and get a prime spot because uh, we're going to have standing room only when it comes to Friday and Sabbath. I want to thank all of you for being here for this meeting. I trust that what we've studied has been useful and beneficial in setting the stage for everything that's going to be discussed. Before we bring this to an end, I would like to ask the Lord to be with us and uh, to bless our symposium. So let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you this evening uh, to thank you for your holy word. What a terrible thing it would be to live in this world without any guidance whatsoever. The world is so confused, it is truly Babylon as it's described in scripture. People don't know where to turn. They don't know what's truth and what is error. But you have left your word as a sure guide in this world. We thank you, Father, for that word that you have given to us. Father, we want to be servants of the word. We want to be like Samuel. We want to say, speak, Lord, for your servant heareth. We want to obey what you say in your holy word. We don't want to look for excuses to be disobedient. Father, I ask that you will bless this symposium, that the next three days might be a mountaintop experience for all of us. I ask, Lord, that you will bless all of the speakers, that you will give them wisdom from on high to speak words from your holy word that will burn within our hearts. I ask, Lord, that you will bless also all of those who will be tuning in by internet, by YouTube, people who will eventually watch these programs on television. I ask, Father, that you will give people open minds and hearts to receive your word as we find it written in that book that you inspired so many ages ago. We thank you, Father, for the promise of your presence. And we thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayer this evening. For we ask it in the precious name of your beloved Son, Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.